Aloha. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. You want to know the most common heart rhythm problem throughout the world? Well, if you mention atrial fibrillation, you'd be right. Different types of heart rhythm problems can affect how people function when they exercise, just when they're walking around at home. But if you have a problem, it can often be, a, be a, particularly associated with side effects of serious things like strokes. You might need medication, in some cases surgery or pacemakers. But if you ever wondered what caused those sorts of problems, well, we've got a great show for you today. Dr. David Singh is in the studio. He is a cardiology expert and particularly specialty in electrophysiology at Queens Medical Center. And he's going to be ready to answer anybody's questions, including my own, about what causes atrial fibrillation and what's the best way to treat it. We'll be taking your calls in just a few minutes at 941-3689, toll free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Before we get started on that, I want to talk about an upcoming conference going on. In medical news today, we've got Getting a Grip on Arthritis. This coming Saturday, March 22nd, there's a free community health event. And if you or anybody you know has arthritis, this is going to be a discussion that you want to go to. It's going to be happening at Alamoana Hotel in the Hibiscus Ballroom. Again, this Saturday, it's free. You can register online. But we've got one of the faculty on the phone now talking a little bit about what you might learn at this conference. Dr. Alberto Santos Ocampo, rheumatologist at Straub Bone and Joint Centers on the line. Bertie, tell us a little bit about why somebody might want to come to this conference and what they might learn. Hi, Kathy. Uh, good afternoon, and thank you for inviting me. Um, this is actually a yearly event that uh, HPH and Straub offers and every year we've done this, we've pretty much had around a 1,000 people come to attend and learn about things they can do for their arthritis, or if they don't have arthritis yet, how they could probably prevent arthritis from developing. We talk about mostly osteoarthritis or wear and tear arthritis. Um, and also, um, this year we'll be having some talks on osteoporosis, which we've done a few times before, but not recently. So uh, there's a lot of interesting things they may, they may learn from, from this uh, um, seminar. So even if you don't have arthritis, but you want to try and prevent it, this is a place where you might learn about some of the ways to keep your joints hopefully functioning healthily as long as you can. Correct, yes, yes. And then the other topic, osteoporosis. Lots of people want to prevent that. Oh, absolutely. There's a lot of medicines out there, but there's also some other things you can do to make sure that you're doing the best you can to keep your bones healthy. That is correct, yes. And exercise is actually very helpful for both, you know, whether you're dealing with osteoarthritis or osteoporosis, um, exercise is is good for both, both problems. Well, you know, it's funny because I really can't think of any medical problem that people have that exercise wouldn't help. Oh, that's correct. In some way. You know, when you think about the majority of things we see in the office, I mean, okay, cancer. Maybe you can't treat cancer with exercise, but boy, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes, osteoporosis, osteoarthritis, these are all things that getting outdoors can really help with. Now, you're also going to be talking a little bit about joint replacement surgery. So if somebody already has arthritis and is looking at whether or not they need to do something more dramatic for their joints, you're going to be talking about that as well. Is that right? Sure, and we have, you know, one of the best orthopedic surgeons um, in Hawaii discussing, 
you know, uh, joint replacement surgery from his standpoint. Um, but even with joint replacement surgery, exercise is still very important before the surgery and after because um, if you allow your muscles to, you know, get too weak because you don't use those uh, arthritic joints prior to, sur- prior to joint replacement surgery, you will have a harder time recovering uh, during the rehabilitation phase. And, um, you know, so th- the rehabilitation phase is just as important as the actual joint replacement. Well, and I think you're referring to the program chair, Dr. Kasna Kasone. He'll be there along with yourself, Dr. Mohammed Abi Youssef, Marcy Nowak, who's an exercise physiologist, uh, Rochelle Takimoto, orthopedic surgeon from Wilcox, and Justin Young, sports medicine. So you guys have a huge lineup of some fantastic folks to really help provide this free public information on how to keep your joints healthy and how to make sure that if you do need a surgery, you keep going as long as possible. Absolutely. And, you know, if they haven't registered by now, they should because uh, the slots uh, fill up really quickly. Yeah, you mentioned that it, you know, over a thousand folks have come. Again, this is going to be Saturday, March 22nd. If you want more information, you can always give a call to 522-3469 or you can go online to hawaiipacifichealth.org slash getting a grip. And you can also go ahead and fax uh, sign up or fax information to 522-4455. So thanks again, Dr. Ocampo, for telling us a little bit about this event. Now, there's also going to be video conference available. Absolutely. I mean, for I believe they have one at Wilcox and at Palimomi for those who cannot physically come to um, Alamoana uh, Hotel. Sure, and if there's a 1,000 people. Oh, yeah. I would and, think parking. Know, it, it, I would actually go out to Palimomi <laughs> to avoid the parking, but Absolutely. that's just me. Yes, yes. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. Again, that's Dr. Alberto Santos Ocampo. He is a rheumatology expert. He's going to be giving a talk, uh, particularly this weekend, about non-drug therapies for osteoarthritis pain. Thanks for joining us today, and I hope to see a lot of folks at that conference. I'm sure I will. What a great topic. So thanks for putting that on. And thank you for the uh, free advertisement. (laughs) Absolutely. Free advertisement for a free conference. What more could you ask for? All right. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay, today we're talking a little bit more about the heart. Now, the heart has three basic components, kind of like a building. There's structure, you know, the different chambers of the heart, the plumbing or arteries that supply blood flow to the heart, and the electrical system, which is what directs the heartbeat. Arrhythmias happen in the electrical system, and we have an expert today. We've got Dr. David Singh from Queen's Heart, and we're going to talk some more about atrial fibrillation and other sorts of heart arrhythmias And what's that pounding sensation you feel in your chest, and how do you know if it's something serious? If you've got a question or a concern, you can join us at 941-3689, toll-free from our neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Dr. Singh, welcome to The Body Show. Thanks, Kathy. I appreciate the opportunity. Happy to have you here. Now, tell us a little bit. You know, atrial fibrillation, it sounds like a scary thing, but how common is this, And, and how would you know if you had it? Yeah, so it's actually very common, and I think anybody with a heart rhythm problem always is rightly concerned because some heart rhythm problems can be dangerous. But uh, although atrial fibrillation has a lot of potential consequences, um, it's really quite manageable, and uh, a lot of people are afflicted with this disorder. Just to give you an idea, the chance of developing atrial fibrillation uh, after the age of 40 is 25%. So you can imagine— One in four. Yeah, that as people get older and 
from what we understand, this is really primarily a disease of aging. Uh, more and more people develop atrial fibrillation. So it's extremely common, and we have many good methods of treating the disease. Now, how would you know if you were in atrial fibrillation? Do most people notice it? Do they not notice that that's what it is? This is one of the really interesting things about atrial fibrillation, which is that for some patients, it's picked up completely incidentally. So they may be going in for a colonoscopy or some other routine test, and someone listens to their heart and finds out it's irregular, and they actually had no idea they were actually in it. Whereas with other patients, they know the minute that they go into it and feel quite disabled by it. And so it's a little unclear why some people have such dramatic symptoms, whereas other people don't have symptoms. But to be sure, many, many patients have the symptoms associated with AFib, such as shortness of breath, palpitations, they can feel their heart racing. Uh, and this is a very common uh, situation with patients with AFib. So let's talk about what it really is. Normally, the heart beats about how many times a minute? And what is it that makes something can be considered to be fibrillating. What is that process? Right. So to really understand AFib, you have to kind of understand how the heart beats. And as you mentioned earlier, every time the heart beats in the human body, it's because an electrical impulse has told it to beat. And in a normal situation, we are all born with a pacemaker that sits in the top right chamber of the heart. That's called the right atrium. And every time that pacemaker fires, it sends an impulse from the top chambers of the heart down to the bottom chambers. And as a result of that, the top chambers contract and then the bottom chambers contract. And when the heart is beating healthily in a normal fashion, that happens between 60 and 80 times per minute if people are at rest. Now, in atrial fibrillation, what, what actually has happened is the top chambers have gone haywire. And instead of beating 60 to 80 times per minute, they actually end up beating three, four, even 500 times per minute. And so the result of that is the bottom chambers end up beating a lot faster than they should, and the top chambers end up beating way faster than they should. And for that reason, people often get the symptoms of a racing heart. So in that case, you know, I remember this visual image from medical school. And somebody said, if you were to look at the heart on the top in fibrillation, it's like a bag of worms. Now, I personally have never put worms in a bag, but you can kind of physically think about what that might look like. So it's not just the pacemaker that's going that fast. There's different parts of the heart saying, hey, we're going to start beating. No, we're going to start beating. So the top chambers can go pretty darn fast. And if your bottom chamber follows that, that could be trouble. That's right. So, um, yeah, the bag of worms analogy is pretty good. I don't really like worms very much. Yeah, neither but, do I. But we but can it, work it with it. It was a visual. It just <laughs> stayed in my but, head for decades. I'll yeah, tell you. well, it, it, you know, that teaching method worked, I guess. And I that, guess that's, so, yeah. uh, it's a good analogy. And in, in, in a sense, what's happening with the top chambers is the pacemaker's actually been put to sleep because the rest of the chamber is beating so fast. In fact, it's beating so fast that if you were to look at it, you wouldn't even appreciate that it's contracting. And this is what fibrillation is, meaning it's actually actually just kind of quivering. Now, fortunately, there is a safety mechanism, and that safety mechanism exists in the heart such that not every impulse from the top chambers, known as the atria, get down to the ventricles. And that's because if the ventricles were beating at 500 times per minute, the patient or the individual wouldn't be alive. That's not really compatible with life. So there's a little gatekeeper, and it's called the AV node, and that basically filters out a lot of the impulses from the top chamber of the heart. Unfortunately, it doesn't often filter out as many as it should, and so the bottom chambers still end up beating faster than they should. But uh, 
it does serve the purpose of preventing the bottom chambers from going uh, dangerously fast in many instances. Now, is it always that the heart's going faster, or could it just be beating irregular? So it might be still within that 60 to 80, maybe up to 100, but instead of being regular as every, you know, few seconds or ever not few seconds, but every, you know, less, a little more than a second or so, that you get this beat, is it, could it just be same same rate, but just funny rhythm? Yeah, that's a great question. So as to, you know, why people have symptoms with atrial fibrillation, one reason for sure is that at times the heart is beating faster than it should. So if someone's sitting down, uh, their heart rate should be between 60 and 80 beats per minute. If they're in atrial fibrillation, it could be 120, 130, even faster. And they may feel bad just because their heart isn't appropriately fast. But we also know that patients with atrial fibrillation who have their heart rate controlled and sometimes will control their heart rate with drugs or other methods often still don't feel very good. And that's probably because the top chambers and the bottom chambers aren't synchronized in an appropriate way. And that leads to things like shortness of breath or palpitations or just generalized fatigue. So you're correct. It's more than just how fast the heart is going. It's actually the fact that the fibrillation is occurring that's essentially limiting cardiac output and some of the other physiologic parameters that make us feel good when we feel good. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. David Singh. We're talking about atrial fibrillation and what does that mean and how do you know if you're in it and what can you do to avoid it. If you've got a question you want to know or if you or a loved one have been diagnosed with this, you can give us a holler at 941-3689. Toll free from our neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Now, Dr. Singh, the well, what could I personally be doing that might make me at a greater risk of atrial fibrillation. Are there any lifestyle things people do that could put them at a greater risk, whether they're under 40 or over 40 or anything like that? Yeah, so um, this is actually one of the, the areas of, of medicine, in particular cardiology, that we really haven't uh, made too much progress in. And that is to say, we don't really know in any given patient what causes AFib. We have identified many risk factors. Um, genetics is certainly one of them, and uh, we do know in some families uh, AFib tends to cluster. We know that it is for sure associated with high blood pressure. So if you're diagnosed with high blood pressure, making sure your blood pressure is under control is very important. We know that it's associated with heart failure. We know it's associated with other diseases like diabetes. So doing all the things that we can do to prevent those other diseases hopefully will impact the likelihood of developing atrial fibrillation. Um, there are other things like, in particular, alcohol in large doses is definitely associated with atrial fibrillation. But for many patients, and this happens a lot, I get a patient that comes in and he or she says, hey, look, I'm healthy, I surf every day, I eat the right food, I don't smoke, I don't drink, I live this model life of good health, and I have AFib. What did I do wrong? And that's a very common situation. And the bottom line is a lot of times we don't know what causes it. So to the extent that we can prevent some of these things, we should and focus on the risk factors that I mentioned. But sometimes, unfortunately, it just happens, and we haven't cracked that mystery yet. What about caffeine? 
if you're a caffeine queen, if you like to have a lot of that, yeah. oh, I don't know who I'd be talking about. Could that put you at risk? Um, yeah, it certainly can. And I think the the effects of caffeine uh, are important in that it, it is a stimulant. And any stimulant can affect the heart and in particular put people into fast heart rhythms such as atrial fibrillation. What I tell my patients is, you know, everybody, I certainly have some patients that like their morning cup of coffee. And if it doesn't really seem to impact their AFib, I actually tell them, you know, go ahead and drink your coffee. Because not for every patient, caffeine isn't going to be an issue. But certainly if you're developing AFib or you have AFib and it's a new diagnosis, or really if you have any fast heart rhythm that's been brought to your doctor's attention, cutting out caffeine is one of the first things that will do because it very well may impact how often you get the disease or how frequently, how severe, that kind of thing. It's one of those lifestyle things. Cut the caffeine, make sure you drink enough water, don't get dehydrated, do the stuff you can if you're not living that model life that some of the folks that see you are. We've got a caller on the line. We've got my friend Claire from Punchbowl. Claire, welcome to The Body Show. Hi, Dr. Kozak. How are you? Fabulous. How about you today? Fine, thanks. You would know I would have questions on this topic. I would know that. <laughs> yes, I would. <laughs> Doctor, in the case of paroxysmal AFib, um, are there triggers or is this just a spontaneous short circuit event? Good question. Yeah, that's a great question, and that's really been the focus of a lot of the work that's been done on this disease. Um, the first thing you said that I should kind of uh, elaborate on is this idea of paroxysmal AFib. Oh, thank so, you. yeah, I, I, not everybody uh, has the same kind of AFib. So, some people will go in and out of it, and we refer to that as paroxysmal AFib. And other people have more advanced disease where they're really in it all of the time. So, we really treat patients a little bit differently based on how much burden of AFib. AFib they have. Now, we absolutely do know that in patients with paroxysmal AFib, and this was a very important discovery uh, that came out of France uh, about 10 years ago, that we do recognize that there are triggers for AFib. And those triggers tend to be just like a key. I tell my patients, it's like a key turning on the engine. So you need something to tell the AFib to basically occur. And that trigger usually comes from, uh, not always, but often comes from something called the pulmonary veins, which are basically veins that are draining blood from the lungs into the top left chamber of the heart called the left atrium. So that trigger occurs in the pulmonary veins. And if you can get rid of the trigger, uh, you often can get rid of a patient's atrial fibrillation. So that's the target that we use for our procedures called ablation procedures when we take patients to the hospital into the electrophysiology lab and try and get rid of their triggers. We're often targeting the pulmonary veins. And are there things like stress, exercise? You mentioned caffeine, perhaps alcohol. Um, or is it different for each person, a, a trigger? Right. So I I think that uh, some of the normal culprits are stress. And we mentioned caffeine, lack of sleep, all of these things. Sleep apnea is a big one that goes underdiagnosed very often. But I think you're right. It really tends to be very idiosyncratic. And what, you know, may be a trigger for one patient may not be a trigger for another. I always tell patients, you know, because all, all, you know, almost all of my patients come in and have stress. And it's almost... In, 
possible to eliminate things like stress from your life. But we do know that stress plays a huge role on the heart. So to the extent that you can reduce stress, I think it's a great thing. So for example, I tell a lot of my patients if they have things that they can do to reduce stress, such as doing yoga or meditation or any other things, I'm all for it. Because I think the interplay between all of these different risk factors and triggers with the disease isn't quite clear, but we know that reducing them as much as possible is almost surely helpful. Well, that's great information. Thanks. And if if you get to this in the discussion today, when you talk about the ablation procedure, please let us know how you decide it's time to do that. (laughs) It's a great question, Claire. How do you know it's time to really look at ablation depending on how often you have the fibrillation episodes and how much it bothers you? So we are going to get to that. So keep listening. Okay, thank you. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. David Singh. When we come back, we are going to talk a little bit about procedures and when you would know if you need to have one. But we're also going to talk a little more about atrial fibrillation and some of the latest medications and treatments and really why you should worry about it. What are the consequences if you don't treat it? Please stay with us. We'll be with you right here in just one minute. Each person received his or her own word with the assurance that no one else would use it that way in this universe or the beyond. Isabel Allende's Magic Words. This week on Selected Shorts from PRI, Public Radio International. Tuesday at 5 p.m. following Travel with Rick Steves. Aloha, Ray Cruz here. Our all-important spring fundraiser is coming up. It begins on April 2nd. A more important day to remember is March the 27th. Why? Because if you get your pledge in before then, it not only helps shorten the drive, it also puts you in the running for two round-trip tickets to Beijing on Hawaiian Airlines. All the details are available at hawaiipublicradio.org. Enlightened self-interest, some would call it. Plain good sense is what I call it. And thanks. Aloha. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and I am here in the studio with Dr. David Singh. He is an expert in electrophysiology and in particular has a special interest in atrial fibrillation. He works at the Queens Medical Center, does go over to Hilo, and also here on Oahu. And we're talking today about this particular heart rhythm problem because not treating it may lead to some serious conditions. If you or someone you love has been diagnosed with atrial fibrillation, you can join us, 941-3689, toll-free from our neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Before the break, we were talking with Claire from Punchbowl wanting to know, what do you need to do about atrial fibrillation, and when do you really have to consider procedures? Before we talk about that, Dr. Singh, let's talk about how you approach fibrillation. Is this something where it's always requiring blood thinners, always requiring medicine? What, when you see somebody who comes in who has this condition, let's say they have it um, intermittently, and how would it be different if they have it all the time? What is the approach that you take? to helping them to figure out the best way to treat it. Right. So I think, you know, the underlying message is actually it's very important to take an individualized patient care approach with this disease because every patient with AFib is a little bit different, and you really need to tailor the therapy to uh, that individual. As a sort of general overview, with any patient that comes in to talk about their AFib, I focus on two major sort of general issues. The first is, what are we going to do about your symptoms? If you're asymptomatic, 
then we can't really do much about your symptoms. It's hard you to make. You don't have any, which is good. Someone, but okay. right? So I always say it's, you know, if you're feeling good, it's hard for me to make you feel better. And uh, the truth is there are many patients with AFib that actually do feel reasonably well in AFib. So you may not have to focus so much on symptom management. Now, it's true, getting people back into rhythm, there are other benefits to the heart if we can do that. But for many patients who are asymptomatic, we will actually leave them in atrial fibrillation if the chances of getting them back into a normal rhythm are very low. On the other hand, if they have a lot of symptoms, then we want to try and address those symptoms, and we most readily do that. Uh, by basically using therapies to try and get them back into rhythm. That may range from putting them on medications that are designed to maintain a normal rhythm, or as we mentioned a little bit earlier, doing an ablation procedure. So that's the first box that we kind of talk about. And then the second portion of the discussion, which is really critical, is reducing their risk of stroke. So patients with atrial fibrillation are as much as five times more likely to have a stroke than that of the general population. And the reason is because in atrial fibrillation, the blood is not being flushed through the atria as effectively as it should. And whenever blood is not moving vigorously through any part of the body, really, you have the problem of blood clots forming. If a blood clot forms in the heart and happens to get dislodged and end up in the brain, it can cause a stroke. So we're very, very focused on making sure that patients with AFib do as much as they can to reduce their risk of stroke. And they're basically a few different uh, approaches that we can take. The most common is using something called a blood thinner, and there's several different drugs that we have uh, at our um, availability that we can use to reduce the risk of stroke in that setting. And then there's some newer therapies that uh, we're doing that can also reduce their stroke risk where we don't have to actually put them on medications. But basically, it's stroke prevention and symptom management. That's the cornerstone of therapy. No matter how old? Yeah, no matter how old. Because there were some studies that were done in the past that showed that we weren't doing the stroke prevention as well as we could. And by we, I mean collectively medical physicians of various different specialties that we often were saying, you know, let's not go ahead and put you on blood thinners. We're afraid of some of the side effects. The monitoring is difficult. But these days there are some newer medicines that kind of address some of those issues. Take away the monitoring and still are safe enough because you mentioned it's a five times greater risk of stroke. Yeah, so a um, couple things. I mean, number one, it's important to realize that not everyone with atrial fibrillation should be on a blood thinner. The decision to put someone on a blood thinner depends on the risk, their individual risk of stroke against the risk of bleeding. And, of course, anytime you thin someone's blood, you always run the risk of bleeding. But if someone's risk of stroke is higher than their risk of bleeding, then, of course, it does make sense to put them on a blood thinner. So that being said, a 40-year-old with no medical problems and just atrial fibrillation may not need to be on a blood thinner. But I completely agree with you. By and large, as a community, we probably have been under-treating our AFib patients in terms of whether they should be on blood thinners because the blood thinners are so very effective at reducing stroke. And in fact, the only drugs that have ever been shown to make people live longer with atrial fibrillation are drugs that thin the blood. And that's because people don't typically die from atrial fibrillation, but they can die from a stroke. And if you thin the blood with blood thinners in the appropriate patient, you can reduce the risk of stroke and theoretically can prolong their life. So really, if it's indicated, talk with your doctor, decide if you're a candidate for it, 
And really, you like you mentioned, that individual decision. It really depends on the individual, which medicine you choose and what's available out there. And some of the newer blood thinners that you don't have to monitor as carefully, like you would if you were on warfarin or Coumadin, have some pluses or minuses. They're not for everybody. Yeah, no. So I think one of the big reservations that a lot of patients have, understandably, is going on to a medication called Coumadin, which, of course, you know, was initially used as a rat poison. So patients come in and say, well, why are you putting me on a rat poison? Well, the fact of the matter is, is before these newer drugs, that rat poison reduces your risk of stroke by 25, no, by 60 percent. Okay, so it's very effective. Now, the downside of Coumadin is that it's really uh, difficult to take. You have to get blood tests often, has a lot of drug interactions, a lot of interactions with food. So patients are understandably reluctant to take the drug. In the last several years, at least three new drugs have come on the market that are much, much easier to take for many, many patients. And so increasingly, we've been turning to those drugs because they appear to be at least as effective as Coumadin, if not more effective, at reducing stroke and just as safe as Coumadin, if not even safer in some situations. So that's a really great option for many patients. All right. We've got a caller on the line. We have Ron from Makiki. Ron, welcome to The Body Show. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, just a quick question. Uh, is there any relation or um, connection between skipped or delayed heartbeat and AFib? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, there are many different kinds of skipped or delayed heartbeats. Uh, sometimes those skipped beats or extra beats come from the top chambers of the heart. Sometimes they come from the bottom chambers of the heart. One thing that I'll say is, and I get a lot of patients that come to my clinic with skip beats or delayed beats or extra beats, and usually we don't do too much about them, even if they're having symptoms, because they're not usually associated with AFib in the early stages. Now, to If people are having a lot of skip beats, and particularly if they're having a lot of extra beats coming from the top chambers of the heart, then we start to wonder whether there may be something going on and whether later on they may develop AFib. But honestly, it's very hard to predict whether that will happen. So for the most part, if people are just having occasional skip beats, delayed beats, we don't really worry too much about it. And if they're having symptoms just for those beats, we may put them on medications. But we don't necessarily assume that that will lead to atrial fibrillation down the line. Okay, thank you very much. All right, Ron, great question, and thanks for calling in. Because, you know, Dr. Singh, a lot of people wonder, if you get these extra beats, if you get a run of extra beats, if you notice your heart pounding in your chest, is that going to put you at risk for strokes? And really, those sorts of things aren't necessarily the case. You need a diagnosis first, and sometimes it might just be that you've done something to make your heart irritable. You had too much caffeine, or you happen to have too much stress, or you know, you mentioned sleep apnea as a very underdiagnosed cause of AFib, and we're learning more and more about sleep apnea and the ways in which it affects blood pressure and it affects metabolism and a variety of other areas, and AFib is just another one of those reasons why, if you think you have it, time to get it checked out. Yeah, and I think, as you pointed out, a lot of people have extra beats, and uh, oftentimes it's not something that we really need to worry about too much, and just reassurance is probably the best medicine. Uh, But under certain circumstances, we really need to make the diagnosis. So uh, probably every day that I have clinic, I get at least one or two patients who are referred for palpitations. And the key is really defining what the mechanism of the palpitations is. 
If it's just an extra beat here and there, that's fine, and we'll often do monitoring to prove that. But if it's undiagnosed atrial fibrillation, we also need to make that discovery. And so we'll frequently monitor patients to try and get a sense for what the cause of the palpitations are before uh, going forward. Now, some of the tests that you can do range from things like EKGs, which are sort of like a one-time event where you see if the heart rhythm at baseline is normal, moving on to Holters, where you can monitor someone for 24 hours. Then there's event monitors, and they can try and pick up if you're having these episodes. How far does somebody need to go if they're having some, some heartbeat issues that they never seem to have when they're monitored? At what point should they really pursue making sure that they figure out what it is? Is it based on their symptoms? Is it based on the suspicion of it being something concerning? How do you know how far to go? Yeah, that's a great question. And I don't think there's an easy answer to that. I think, um, as you mentioned, there's sort of different levels of monitoring. And the 24 or 48-hour Holter monitor, which many people get, sometimes is helpful, but it often is not because you're getting such a brief snapshot in time that unless someone's having symptoms every day, you often end up missing it. And it's very common for a patient to say, of, you know, I had it every day and then I got the Holter monitor and I didn't it's have like anything. It's like therapeutic yeah. Holter monitor, exactly. right? Yeah. So, um, and then as you get more progressively involved, you can have these event monitors. Uh, we can implant recorders. I'm holding in my hand right now a really cool iPhone app where basically you can put your fingers on your iPhone and It'll record your heartbeat. So there are all sorts of different levels of monitoring. It's all about the context. If someone is just having occasional symptoms and it doesn't really bother them that much, and I have a very low threshold for thinking that it's AFib, then I might do some monitoring. And if they're basically doing okay, I won't worry about it. If I have a patient that was sent to me uh, that because they had a stroke, and they, we really don't know why they had the stroke. And I suspect that the cause of the stroke may have been underdiagnosed AFib. I'll sometimes implant a monitor because I can get three years out of that monitor and I know that I won't miss any AFib that occurs. And the the imperative to really make the diagnosis in that situation is even more important. So the degree of monitoring often has to do with the context of the individual patient. And if we're very concerned, we tend to be more aggressive with monitoring. Now, one of our callers earlier was mentioning, how do you know when you have to consider things like ablation? So first, what is ablation and how is this helpful? So ablation is a procedure that is sort of a generic term for cauterizing areas of the heart that may be causing heart rhythm disturbances. And electrophysiologists like myself and others basically use the technique of ablation to target many, many different heart rhythm issues. The basic idea is that there's some circuitry in the heart that shouldn't be there, and if we can localize that circuitry or the extra pathways or whatever in the heart is creating mischief and actually cauterize it, burn it with a specialized catheter, we can often get rid of the heart rhythm disorder. In atrial fibrillation, Over the last 10 years, there's been a lot of discovery about mechanisms of atrial fibrillation, and as I mentioned earlier, the triggers for atrial fibrillation. And what we found is if we go after those veins that I mentioned, the pulmonary veins, which are often the triggers for AFib in many, many patients, the key that turns on the engine, and we cauterize around those veins so that the electrical impulses in the veins can't get out of the vein to the surrounding atrium, we can substantially reduce 
reduce and in some cases eliminate a patient's atrial fibrillation. So we typically will do ablations for patients with AFib who have a lot of symptoms. Maybe they tried some drugs and those drugs didn't work. And the really nice thing about ablation is that it, even though it is an invasive procedure, it's not a surgical procedure. So, you know, I'm not a surgeon. I don't use scalpels and cut people's chests open. Basically, we're able to do this by using the veins in someone's body to get into the heart. And most of our patients after an ablation procedure for AFib leave the next day. So it's almost like doing angioplasty. People might be familiar with that or putting in stents. You're not completely unconscious. You're under sedation. You're in a specialized area of a hospital, but you're not necessarily in an area like an operating room. Well, so the technique is similar to angioplasty in that we use the the vasculature in the body, in this case veins, not arteries, to get to the heart. Uh, For AFib ablations in particular, because it can be a long procedure, I do put my patients under general anesthesia. Uh, Although it's not technically required, it's just hard for them to lie still for three or four hours, which is sometimes how long it takes. And uh, as you pointed out, yeah, they just basically, they come to our electrophysiology lab uh, at Queens um, and uh, they wake up and spend the night in the hospital and often will go home the next day. Now, how do you know when your symptoms are bad enough that you should look at fibrillation. Right. So, I mean, I think this gets back to the issue of individualized patient care. And ablation is not for everyone. Uh, Quite frankly, a lot of patients do very well just on drug therapy alone. So what we typically will do is try to figure out for each patient how bad their symptoms are, whether we want to try what we refer to as a rhythm control strategy, meaning we believe that they would be better off in a normal rhythm And then we'll go through the different options. We'll say, listen, you can try drugs first, and if the drugs don't work, we can go to ablation. Uh, We might say in a young patient, you know, who really doesn't want to take drugs, hey, listen, you know, if you don't want to take drugs, your best bet is probably to try ablation first. So for for the most part, the reason we do it is for patients who are symptomatic. It's pretty rare that I'll ablate someone who doesn't have any symptoms. There'd have to be a pretty compelling reason. But if patients with AFib really do feel like the symptoms from AFib bother them, then oftentimes they're very good candidates for ablation. The last thing I'll say is that, as we talked about a little bit earlier, the, there are different kinds, there are different stages of the disease. Patients with paroxysmal AFib tend to do a lot better with ablation compared to patients with so-called permanent AFib, where they're just kind of in it all of the time. And the structure of your heart, does that tend to also be something that impacts the decision? If you have dilation of your heart in various areas, if you have other heart conditions, valve problems or other issues, might that also play a role? They definitely do. And with AFib, the top left chamber of the heart, the left atrium, will frequently enlarge. And what we know is that one of the best, one of the worst predictors of how people do with ablation is how big that chamber is. So if I see someone who's been in AFib for 10 years and their left atrium is six centimeters big, then I can almost promise them that ablation is not going to be worthwhile because it's so very hard to get them back into a normal rhythm. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. David Singh, and we are talking about 
atrial fibrillation. This is a condition where your heart just doesn't beat the regular way that it used to and can be treated in a variety of different ways. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about that personalized approach that you need, some things you can do right now if you're concerned about your risks for atrial fibrillation, and ways that you can make sure to get your heart checked out when you need to so that you can stay healthy. You can join our conversation at 941-3689, toll free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We'll be right back. About a month ago, former FCC Commissioner Michael Copps published a letter to journalists. In it, he says he'd had a front-row seat watching government policy undermine the profession and our democracy. Mr. Copps is spending Sunshine Week in Hawaii. We'll talk to him about his current weather report tomorrow morning at 8 on The Conversation. New Letters on the Air at the Kansas City Public Library features Irish novelist Anne Enright, who talks about structuring her fiction. I'm interested in the way things sit beside each other, the way if you move in a non-linear fashion, what it does to the reader's brain, actually. Anne Enright reads from her award-winning novels, The Forgotten Waltz and The Gathering on New Letters on the Air. Tuesday evening at 6.30... Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome back to The Body Show. Here in the studio today with Dr. David Singh, and we're talking about atrial fibrillation. He is an electrophysiology expert at the Queen's Heart Center. And before the break, we were mentioning a little bit about an iPhone app. Everybody these days likes to go ahead and figure out what their heart's doing. Well, I don't know. I do. Check your pulse when you're at the gym. Check to see how fast you're going. If you're working hard enough, which generally I find out I need to go faster. But, you know, you mentioned an app that we were just looking at during the break that sounded really neat, the AliveCore app. I want one because it looks cool. But who really needs something like this, and what can it do to help them? Right. So uh, I think that the sort of the bottom line is that technology is evolving so quickly that you know, the days of having to hook yourself up to all these different leads and wearing these bulky things around you to get home monitoring hopefully will be a thing of the past. This is just something that a co- colleague of mine actually put me onto a few months ago. And uh, the particular app is called AliveCore, which can be, you know, downloaded from the App Store. But it's actually a case for the iPhone. And it's really cool. It has two electrodes on the back of the case. So an individual can basically at any time they want put their fingers on the electrodes and it will automatically read what the heart is doing at that particular moment in time. So I think there are a lot of technologies similar to this that are coming out. But the kinds of patients who I think would benefit from this kind of technology are patients with sort of heart rhythm disorders that uh, are a little bit tougher, where they really need to be able to assess what their heart rhythm is doing at any given time, and they're having to get Holter monitors all the time or event monitors all the time. This is a neat little alternative because they basically have it at all times, assuming they have their phone with them at most times, which most people do. So I think as the technology gets better, our ability to diagnose and manage these diseases will also improve vastly. So this is one option if somebody wanted to think about it. They're having frequent rhythm issues. They could consider something like this, talk with their doctor. And does it record? Does it actually, if if you had one of these and you went in to see your cardiologist and said, 
I think I have a heart rhythm problem. And, and we talked about me using this monitor, and I used it several times, and this is what I saw. You can record it. You can show it to yeah. somebody later. This particular app is pretty neat because, and again, I'm not involved with the promotion of this app at all or with the company. Well, I want one now. I kind of wish so I were. I have but... no reason for it, but now I want one. <laughs> yeah, but, okay. but um, the really cool thing about this is actually once the recording takes place, it actually can be sent wirelessly to like a server that your doctor could then pull up and look at. So theoretically, the patient doesn't even need to come into the office. You know, they can just re- look at it remotely. So there's a lot of really amazing applications for this kind of thing. And I think this kind of application is really the future of uh, of heart monitoring in the outpatient setting. Well, it makes it accessible to everybody. I know I've had a few people who have seen me and they happen to work in an ER or they happen to work in an ambulance. And boy, when they have their funny heart rhythm, they're able to just hook themselves up exactly to the monitor and show me exactly what it looked like because they happen to be in that setting. But what's the likelihood if you're going to have trouble that it's going to happen when you're right near your local ambulance or you're at work in the ER? It's, It's less likely. So, you know, this is another way to make remote monitoring more accessible. And I think it only can help refine the ability to make the diagnosis and to make the correct one. I agree. Now, right now, the cost, at least for this, to the patient is $200, which I think is still it's pretty It's still kind high. of pricey. But yeah, but I'm hoping, you know, as time goes on with the technology being what it is, the price will hopefully come down as well. All right. We've got a caller on the line. We have John from Maui. John, welcome to The Body Show. Hi. <clears throat> yeah. I uh, <clears throat> I had a, a mitral valve repair, and uh, I'm doing great, playing a lot of tennis. My uh, my doctor from California has me on two drugs. One, uh, amlodipine, uh-huh. and the other one, uh, metroprolol. Uh, you know, met- metroprolol. Yep. And, you know, <clears throat> and I... Uh, you know, his theory was that the metropolol uh, is good for reducing the heartbeat rate, <clears throat> the, uh, whereas the amlodipine uh, is great for blood pressure, and it has been very effective. The amlodipine, I, I, I take very well. I take one a day. <clears throat> blood pressure is down to 115 over 85, uh, and that's working really well. I don't seem to, I, I don't seem to take very well to the uh, metropolol, and uh, and and I you know I don't think it's making a big uh, difference on the uh, on the heart rate. And uh, he's got me on 50 milligrams in the morning and 50 milligrams before I go to sleep. And uh, and I don't I don't particularly like it. There's I don't know I and it. From what I can tell, it's not really doing anything to the heart rate. Before and after, the heart rate's been around 95. I'm curious, John, are you having side effects? Uh, no, not not really. Uh, I not not really. Uh, it's more. Um, I don't think I sleep as well uh, when I'm taking it. You know, the metropolol. And I know, I know it's t- it's given like it seems to me like it's a very common drug that they give for for heart rate issues and also for blood pressure. Yeah, you know it is a it's you a know. very common drug that we use a lot of. Right. Um, and but it also does have a lot of side effects. You know, people do complain about fatigue or not being able to sleep, and uh, particularly yeah. younger patients really don't like it. Um, you yeah. know, I I think the first thing is 
you know, most people's resting heart rate should be sort of in the 60 to 80 per, 80 beats per minute range. And if your heart rate is persistently higher than that, you know, one thing I would, you know, just ask your doctor is whether they've looked into other causes for that. Because really, your heart rate shouldn't be hanging out around 95, 100, just at rest. Now, there are some patients that do have that, but that's the exception. And if your heart rate is generally well controlled off of it, you know, then there's some question of whether you really even need to be on a drug like metoprolol, particularly if you're taking side effects. And finally, if metoprolol doesn't agree with you or it's not really doing the job, then there are other drugs that control heart rate that uh, may be better tolerated. Any particular ones that you uh, feel are great? Well, I, I, like I said, I use a lot of metoprolol, but there's another class of drugs called calcium channel blockers, and uh, your amlodipine is one of them, but there's a related drug called diltiazem, which can control the heart rate as well, which we sometimes use as an alternative. Right, right. <clears throat> no, that's what, I, <clears throat> that's what I was on before, uh, actually before the, uh, <clears throat> before the, uh, repair before the uh mitral valve repair that's what i was on and then and then uh usc medical switched me over i had it done by uh a pretty famous uh valve guy uh vaughn starnes i, I guess and uh and he they put me on they they, they put me on met, yeah they put me on the metropolol and uh but All actually, right. uh, that's interesting that you mentioned Deltiazon because that's what I was on before, and that seemed to do better. I seemed to do way better with that drug than, you know. But uh, Well, John, it sounds like you've had some troubles, and you're on some medication that you might not feel 100% comfortable with. And the most important thing at this point is to really talk with your doctor, whether it be your local doctor in Maui, whether it be your doctor at USC, and see if you can figure out what works best for you. Because, you know, if you've gone to the trouble of having the mitral valve repair, you certainly don't want to go ahead and adjust medication if it could put that repair in some ways, put your heart at risk or put your blood pressure down too low. So at this point, you know, you were on some good medicines. There's still some great ones out there for you. I would say talk to your doc and make sure that you come up with, again, we mentioned a personalized plan, what works best for you so that you can figure out what one you'll be able to take and not have any side effects that you're concerned about or any adverse effects that you're worried about. So it's time to talk to your cardiologist again and see what they say about it. But thanks for calling in, John, because I'm sure you're not alone. You know, one of the things that we talked about was beta blockers. Metoprolol is a beta blocker, and there are a variety of beta blockers out there. When people have fast heart rates, we often give them medications to control their heart rate. There's some specific medicines that are used in certain heart rhythm cases, amiodarone, propafenone, a couple of other ones that are some of the older ones that we used to see people take. And then there's the ones that we use all the time for blood pressure, like metoprolol, diltiazem, some other ones. How do you choose which one might be best for a particular individual? Yeah, so um, typically the beta blockers like metoprolol, the calcium channel blockers like diltiazem, for patients that get atrial fibrillation rarely, we will start with a drug like that as long as the side effects aren't prohibitive. In young patients, we tend not to use them very much because it can make people fatigued. And if they're very active and exercising, you know, it limits their heart rate. So when they're trying to climb up Cocoa Head or whatever else they're doing, their heart rate's not going to respond the way it should, and so they won't like that. But most people 
or many people at least, really tolerate the drugs very well. And so that's a good kind of first-line agent. If that is not working for them, i.e., if they continue to have atrial fibrillation despite the fact that they're on one of these drugs, then we turn to a class of drugs called antiarrhythmic drugs. And these drugs are a little bit uh, heavier hitting in the sense that they're a little more complicated and they sometimes have additional side effects. But they're really designed to prevent the patient from actually going into atrial fibrillation. They're much more effective at regulating atrial fibrillation uh, than are the beta blockers and calcium channel blockers. So if someone's failed those first two drugs, then we tend to go to the antiarrhythmics. And then once the antiarrhythmics, there we go, are given, then if somebody doesn't do well with those, they have side effects, they're not effective, they just can't manage it. Is that when we start talking about more surgical things like ablation? Yeah, so that's kind of the the approach that we take. And for most patients, uh, we at least try them on an antiarrhythmic before jumping to ablation. That's changing now because as we've learned from ablation that it can be so effective at treating this disease that for patients who really don't want to take drugs and want to get off drugs as much as possible, we sometimes will go straight to ablation uh, if we feel that's the right approach. Now, we did have a shy caller who had a question about cold ablation. Yeah. Versus the standard ablation. Yeah. So this is, uh, again, a product of the fact that there's so much new technology out there. And the whole idea with ablation is you're actually killing the cells of the myocardium of the, of the heart. You're getting rid of the, the guys that are causing the trouble. Yeah, it's a targeted, okay. targeted uh, uh, killing of certain cells. And the uh, actual lesion size is really quite small. So um, it sounds a lot worse than it is. There are different ways of killing cells. One is you can heat them. And then another method is actually you can freeze them. The kind of ablation that is sort of most common, I would say, is the heating, and that's called radiofrequency ablation. However, there's another form of ablation called cryoablation that basically has the same outcome, i.e. it kills the cells, but it goes about it in a different way. And there's a lot of interest in using cryoablation for atrial fibrillation. And there's a actually a special catheter called, a, it's kind of like a balloon catheter, that allows physicians to freeze the veins and basically get the same result that you would get from heating them. I personally think both approaches are very, very reasonable. Uh, in the right hands, they're both very, very safe. And I don't think my own opinion is that I'm not sure that one is necessarily better than the other. The most important thing is if you do get ablated, you should definitely go to someone who has a lot of experience with ablation because that's probably the most important predictor of having low complication rates and all that kind of stuff. People who do this all the time. Yeah. And so that's kind of what an electrophysiologist would do. They do cardiology training, but then they specialize to do things like ablation and specific things for heart rhythm issues. That's correct. Now, let's talk just briefly about blood thinners. How effective is standard aspirin if you're taking that as a blood thinner and you have something like paroxysmal AFib or if you have chronic atrial fibrillation? Does it do any good? 
Right. So that's a great question. So one thing and um, that I think it's important to realize is that if you go back and look at lots, there have been lots and lots of studies that have done uh, been done over the years in patients with atrial fibrillation. And although it's a little counterintuitive, the risk of stroke doesn't seem to correlate with how often you're in AFib. So even if you have paroxysmal AFib, your risk of stroke is probably about the same as someone that has longstanding persistent or even permanent AFib. So irrespective of how much your burden is, we will treat you based on uh, your risk factors for stroke and make that decision sort of irrespective of how often you're in AFib. Now, the question about blood thinners is a great one. And I think the the main issue is that aspirin for patients who are very low risk for stroke is probably okay. But for patients who maybe have additional risk factors, and we go through a whole kind of algorithm to decide whether someone should be on a stronger blood thinner, for most patients with AFib, aspirin usually isn't strong enough. It's a pretty weak, uh, pretty weak device in terms of being able to prevent strokes in patients with AFib. But for some patients who are very low risk, we'll consider it. And there might be other reasons why someone would take aspirin to prevent strokes. Maybe not from AFib reasons, but other medical complications they may have. Right. And an aspirin a day in that situation may help to be protective against strokes, just not if you're in fibrillation. That's correct. So for other uh, conditions, aspirin can be very effective. It's certainly very effective at uh, preventing heart attacks if you have heart disease. So there are lots of other reasons to be on aspirin. One other thing that I should mention since we're talking about stroke prevention is that one really exciting area of AFib management is the fact that we know that 90% of blood clots that form in the heart form in one little region, and that's called the left atrial appendage. So if 90% of clots form in this one region and you could get rid of that region, then theoretically you could reduce people's stroke risk. And in fact, surgeons have been doing this for over 50 years. When they go to the OR, if someone has atrial fibrillation, they will ligate or sew or get rid of the left atrial appendage. Well, very recently, there have been a couple of new techniques that have been developed where we can actually get rid of the appendage without actually having to cut someone open. And so we're really excited about this. And we've actually done it in several patients uh, here in Hawaii. And we think that as this technology becomes more and more known, there's a whole nother kind of therapy for patients with AFib who are at risk for stroke, whereby they could actually have their appendage excluded or ligated without surgery and not have to take blood thinners in the future. So this is a really exciting area of AFib management that we're happy about. So that's the future, maybe. That's, that's actually the present. The present, but hopefully, okay. Yeah, because we're actually even doing it now. But uh, but I think the future will be it will be much more available as people become more aware of it. Anything else that's out there in the works for atrial fibrillation? It's a fairly common problem. What else do you think might come down the pike in another 5, 10 years? I think our understanding of the mechanisms of the disease is really going to improve. We've done pretty well with the paroxysmal patients. Uh, We tend to get very nice results with our ablations with respect to patients who go in and out of it and are in the early stages of the disease. Where we're really having more of a struggle is in the patients who have been in AFib for a long period of time. And this is such an explosive field that I'm very confident in the next 5, 10 years, we're going to understand a lot better how to manage those patients and target our ablations in those patients to get even better results than we've been getting. So even even greater opportunities if you have fibrillation to have it treated effectively, reduce those risks of strokes, reduce those other complications. Absolutely. That's what we want to hear. All right, Dr. David Singh, thanks for being on the show today. If people want to find you, how can they do that? 
Um, well, they can uh, go to the QHPP website, uh, the Queen's uh, Heart Physician Practice website, and we have a lot of information on that website about atrial fibrillation, uh, or they can call our office at uh, 691-8900. I was looking at the website earlier today, and they really do have a lot of good information, particularly if somebody wanted to take a look and find out more about different illnesses. So, you know, I'll, I'll be honest. I just went Google with your name. <laughs> I didn't even look up all the specifics, and I went, oh, there he is. But you also go to Hilo, which is another exciting thing. We go, You go to the neighbor islands, and you do some other projects around the world. One of these days, we're going to have to have you come and talk about that. I'd be interested to hear about it. But I want to thank you for sharing your expertise with us today on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for coming. Dr. David Singh is a cardiologist specializing in electrophysiology at Queens Medical Center. He did his training at Georgetown, UCSF, Cedars-Sinai. He's been in Hawaii for the last three years. Special interest in AFib, as you can tell. If you want to hear this program again, you can check it out on our podcast, hawaiipublicradio.org. Our engineer is David Chong. Our executive producer, Beth Ann Kozlovich. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you right here next week on The Body Show.